Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's Talking Africa program. Talking Africa provides in-depth interviews with experts and other actors in the field of peace and security in Africa. Hello, I'm Desmond Davis. My guest today is Professor Cheryl Hendricks, Executive Director of the African Institute of South Africa. Uh, Professor Hendricks, as a start, what is South Africa's current relationship with the rest of the continent? given the xenophobic attacks on Africans who have been living in South Africa? South Africa has always promoted the African agenda um, in terms of government's priorities. We've obviously seen a, a disjuncture between what government proclaims and what is happening on the ground. But um, in terms of South African government, uh, Certainly, the Africa agenda is, is still very much uh, one of its priorities. It went into the UN Security Council last year, having the Africa agenda as its priority. It is chair of the African Union. Uh, this year, it put uh, going in peace and security, the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, and strengthening relations between the AU and the UN Security Council, as its priority areas. But obviously COVID-19 disrupted much of that. And uh, so it has led on the COVID-19 initiative in Africa, um, but hasn't been able to do much in terms of prom promoting the continental uh, trade agreement and in terms of silencing the guns. Uh, yes, but of course, I know that uh, the xenophobic attacks are not orchestrated by the government, by individuals. But this is directly a result of the fact that the government has not been providing for the people and the ANC has not kept its promises. So the, the, these, I believe, are the reasons why uh, ordinary South Africans are taking it out on foreign Africans. Isn't that the case? So definitely. I mean, on the one hand, government has not done enough to promote uh, its stance towards the rest of the Africa at home, right? So bringing the people on board with its pan-African ideology, number one. Number two, corruption within government circles, uh, the lack of service delivery, etc. Just as in other countries and other African countries in particular, uh, people tend to take that out on the foreigner, so to speak. And so we, we've seen that happening in South Africa on a number of different occasions, um, not just once. Yes, I see. Okay, so, so If I may, sorry, Desmond, also, yes. these particular uh, xenophobic attacks uh, make South Africa lose credibility on the African stage. It's very hard to, to go out there to say that you're promoting an African agenda when your people are attacking um, other Africans. And South Africa has to own up to this because part of its narrative has been that these are not xenophobic attacks, that this is somehow something else. So it needs to also own up to that. Yes, I mean, because Africans, uh, African leaders have always said that uh, no African should be treated as a foreigner in, Af in any African country. Isn't that the case? But why uh, Africans, from other parts of the continent are being treated in that way in South Africa by, of course, locals, not the government. 
you know, um, and so you, you have to partly explain this in terms of an apartheid legacy that everything beyond uh, the Limpopo River was bad. That was kind of inculcated. 20 years later, we should have had a, a very different discourse and narrative uh, playing out in South Africa, yet we, we tended to see South Africans, uh, you know, basically say the same thing. Africans are taking our jobs. Africans are doing X, Y, and Z, and not people from Europe having um, the same yes. kind of resentment hold against them. Um, so, I mean, all I can say is that we have to do a lot in terms of uh, raising the consciousness of South African citizens. Indeed, because during the days of apartheid, the whole continent was a refuge for South Africans running away from the, the regime, black as well as white. And no one complained when they were all over the continent being given refuge. That has not been imparted to the ordinary exactly. South Africans either. Yeah, and, and ordinary South Africans uh, either don't know this or they have forgotten this. Um, and, and so we need to, to put that at the forefront um, in South Africa. I mean, it, it is incorrect to say that uh, other Africans are uh, responsible for the lack of, of services, uh, the lack of access to hospitals or schools, etc. It's really not the case. We have to put the blame where it should be, which is on um, inept government governance, basically. So has the, well, has the, the ANC government itself reached out to the rest of the continent to explain these anomalies? It has tried to, I, I think. Not done so, so sufficiently, but it, it has tried to, through various statements by our president and foreign ministers, etc. Yes, uh, with COVID-19, it seems as if silencing the guns in 2020 will not work. So, so how, how, how do we move for, forward on that? So, yeah, um, we may have closed our borders with COVID-19, uh, but civil war still seems to have raged in a number of countries and uh, violent extremism. Also, we see an increase in the number of attacks of viol by violent extremists in 2020. Um, so definitely we have not been able to silence the guns. Uh, we need a, a different strategy for silencing the guns. I don't think um, that the strategy we have in place now is sufficient to deal with the challenges. Um, we almost set in place an architecture, a security architecture, to deal with the kinds of conflicts that we had in the 1990s. Yes you know, the African standby force, et cetera. So yes. the, the tools and uh, the equipment that we have can't really uh, counter the kinds of conflicts that we see emerging. So uh, time to go back to the drawing board, I think, uh, and revisit our, our strategies towards peace and security. Yes, by the same token, uh, COVID-19 has hampered peace processes, hasn't it, on the continent? Yeah, um, so we had a very securitized response to COVID-19. And you can see that through the in SARS campaign and, and in various other countries, Kenya also 
um, mobilizing against the security sector. Um, so what COVID-19 has done is show us our vulnerabilities, uh, our human security challenges that express themselves also in hard security challenges, and the need for security sector reform, I think, in Africa, um, that our security sector does not respect human rights. Um, civil military relations need to be revisited as well here. Yes, but I mean, uh, what about uh, the low incidence of COVID-19 itself in Africa? I mean, is it, are people getting the figures wrong or is it just that uh, it's just not taking hold on the continent? Is, I know you're not a scientist, but what are the officials saying in South Africa? Well, I think South Africa has got the, uh, the highest number of uh, infections, isn't it? So, so we have, we are close to 700,000 infections with 20,000 deaths. So definitely on yes. the continent, uh, we account for the majority of, of cases. I can't speak for the rest of the continent. We don't know if it is because there's insufficient testing, insufficient recording, or if there is uh, something else at play, for example, climate, um, a number of other factors that are at play. I, I can't explain it for the rest of the continent. I can say that in South Africa, we made a definite attempt um, to implement the, the measures uh, that the World Health Organization asked us to implement. And uh, we've been pretty good at, at following those regulations um, and uh, stemming the tide, but it's come at a huge cost to us economically. Uh, yes, but uh, President Ramaphosa, who's the uh, chairman of the AU, actually, actually put together the joint continental strategy for COVID-19. How effective was that? So it was effective in terms of getting a coordinated response uh, going, at least from the African Union side. I do think that countries still implemented uh, their own um, protocols, etc. Uh, I wouldn't say that the low numbers recorded is because of the strategy implemented. I don't think I will attribute it to that. But what we did enable was to go to the donors, get money uh, for PPE, et cetera, that could be distributed throughout Africa. So in, in that respect, um, producing information, getting necessary PPE, getting necessary funding to African countries, in that way, the response is good, I think. Yes, so how does... On, on a number yes. of other... Um, Issues. I, I do think that Africa tried this time in terms of its response to COVID-19. Yes, okay. Uh, with South Africa being the, the, the most industrialized country in Africa, how does it view the African Continental Free Trade Agreement? That is its priority. Um, and so we also have as the director of South African... Yes. Yes, so uh, our president has definitely said that the Continental Free Trade Agreement is where it is going to put its energy and resources. Um, 
It's a first for us. It hasn't been able to do much uh, this year in terms of implementing it. But does that mean that South African goods will swamp the African market because of its industrial strength? The goods have been swamping the African <laughs> market. <laughs> it will most probably also continue to do so. Yes, and but it also involves free movement, isn't it? So that again will come back to uh, bite South Africa. So, I mean, if you just look at SADAC, right? So yes. South Africa dominates the, the SADAC market. And South Africa has also been one of the key countries with Botswana that has not wanted free movement of people. Yeah. Uh, so it changed the SADAC protocol um, to read, I, I forget, uh, but it was something like facilitating the movement of people rather than the free movement of people. So it, it is always scared that it is going to get this, this influx for some reason yes. of people coming in. Now, you can't have your cake and eat it. So if you're going to have um, a free trade agreement, part of that has to be the free movement of people. Goods don't move on their own. They move with people. With people, yes. And people move back and forth to buy goods. Exactly. Yes. So we're going to have to open up. We're going to have to rethink that stance. So what about uh, the uh, weakness, uh, the weaknesses of African uh, economies? I mean, how will that uh, affect the, the free trade uh, agreement, the free trade area? Um, so what is it that we're going to be doing differently this time around? Because remember, we've had the Lagos plan of action. We've yeah. had... Uh, a few attempts now to get regional integration going. Uh, I think we at about 10 to 15 percent of, of trade actually taking place regionally. So the, the big question is, what is it that we're going to do differently besides proclaiming this that will enable the free movement um, of goods, um, right? Uh, and especially post-COVID, because if we see how we responded to COVID, it was a larger mentality, closing of borders, etc. Yes. Um, and I am sure when people look at the cost-benefit analysis for those who will gain by this free trade agreement, they will open up. For those who think that they stand to lose, they will be closing um, trying to protect their industries, etc. So you're going to have to find a way of equalizing that. That's the first. The second, yes, all countries modernize and develop via the means of industrialization. But what form of industrialization? We can't go and repeat what the Koreas and the Chinas, etc. have done. So what form of industrialization is this going to take? So there's a lot of debate about agriculture and adding um, value chains to, to agriculture, etc. We have to see this happening. Uh, Africa itself remains one of primarily exporting primary products. Yes. Our resources. The West... And even China needs us to maintain that particular status quo in order for them to remain developed, right? Yes, I mean, yeah, that's where the problem arises. 
That's where yeah. the problem arises. How, that how, how, that how you... core periphery argument that we heard of in the 1950s is still relevant today. And so we can come up with these policies and programs, but the complicitness of our leaders um, in not wanting to change the, the structure of our economies, that is what we're going to have to break in order for regional integration development to actually occur. Yes, and uh, for Africa countries to provide, uh, to produce goods themselves, it's going to be a tall, tall order because really production in Africa is more expensive than production in China or, or wherever. So th this will be a problem. It's going to be a challenge, but you have to start somewhere. So you have to look at your comparative advantage, where that is located, um, and, and start with particular goods in particular regions. I am not an economist, so I can't really speak to this particular issue. But I, I would say that, uh, you know, in terms of technolo technology, um, producing basic clothes items, et cetera. How are we going to compete there? If you just look at South Africa and how factories in South Africa all shut down, part of our high unemployment rate is also because of that. Um, we went, moved into service sector away from manufacturing because all of these cheap products were coming in. How do we go back to build, rebuild that manufacturing industry? So now our presidents, uh, economic recovery plan, as it is across Africa, it's all based on infrastructure development. Everything seems to hinge magically on infrastructure development. I don't think that that is the panacea for our developmental challenges. The ALC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned. Uh, welcome back. My guest today is Professor Cheryl Hendricks. Executive Director of the African Institute of South Africa in Pretoria. Yes, I mean, the, the point is, I mean, most people who say they're businessmen and businesswomen in Africa just go to China or to Dubai to bring in finished products. And they, and they, they flood the market with these products, which are a lot cheaper than locally produced uh, products. Should Africa start thinking of uh, banning the import of certain uh, products or are we going to or are they going to fall foul of World Trade Organization arrangements and, and legalities? Yeah, I, I don't think the option is to to ban this. It is to think more strategically on what is it that you can produce that you can take to other countries yeah. rather than trying to ban what they are producing. That, well, that spirit of competition. Well, well, that's the point. I mean, I think African countries can look to. Uh, producing what they can produce best and then supply other parts of Africa and other African countries can do that too rather than compete against each other. Exactly. So between them, they can make decisions. But I don't think banning people from importing uh, is going to be the challenge. It's marketing what you produce. Yes. Right? So producing quality goods and marketing that effectively. Yeah, but coming back to uh, production and all that sort of thing, we still have to deal with violent extremism, and, and it's getting closer to uh, South Africa with what we've been seeing in Mozambique. How is how is Sadek uh, reacting to this uh, development? So, 
this is a very worrying aspect for us because we have always been uh, almost bragging, right, that Southern Africa for years now has virtually been free of the kind of armed conflict that we have seen in other parts, the DRC primarily. Yes. 2017, we've seen an increase in um, violent extremism uh, in Mozambique and in the DRC. Um, we've had this, this group, uh, Ansu Sunawa, I think they're called, yeah. uh, lining themselves to ISIS. But we've known across the continent that ISIS has been establishing these provinces, right, in West Africa, yeah. uh, one for Central Africa, etc. SADC has um, a policy framework. So the AU has a policy framework, the, the various RICs have policy frameworks, but at national level, I don't think uh, the countries, Mozambique in particular, and even South Africa, have thought through sufficiently how to deal with the challenge of violent extremism. So we're very new to this. We have to look at uh, what other African uh, countries have been doing, not repeat the same mistakes, because even though there have been all of these regional mechanisms set up, we have not seen the um, a stemming of the increases in, in violent extremism elsewhere. Right, except for North Africa, because North yeah. Africa, apparently, uh, we've seen zero uh, incidents over the last month or so. Um, so we in, in Southern Africa really have to grapple with it. We've all been having various seminars uh, around violent extremism. Those yeah. very long to actually acknowledge that they had a challenge. SADC has not pronounced anything uh, on, on this particular issue. If we don't do something quite soon, I think we will also be overwhelmed. We must be having sleeper cells in South Africa, for example, because they need technology, they need to be able to transfer money, etc. So they would need a base like South Africa to, to be able to do that. Yes. Right? Yes, but final enough, with Mozambique, one would have thought that uh, Islamists would not have a foothold in that country, a revolutionary country in Africa. How did that happen in the first place? What, what, what are the links, really, the connections? So look at the area, right? It's in the north, it's Cabo Delgado. There is a, a substantive Muslim population, I believe, there. It's very close to Tanzania, mm -hmm. that particular area. Um, that's also the area where um, the, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the, the grouping. Oh, Renamo. Renamo, thank Renamo, you. Renamo, yes. Yeah, Renamo was located also in, in that particular area. So here you have an area marginalized, uh, lack yes. of delivery, etc. If you look at the causes for violent extremism, they're almost always related to two things, structural issues, uh, religious issues. Um, so the structural issues are around lack of service delivery, governance, um, security sector and how they respond to people, um, 
ideological issues around religious fundamentalism emerge because people need hope, they need a better alternative, and these ideologies perpetrated by violent extremist groups provide them that, an alternative state of being, which we are not able to do. So we're well, not articulating a different narrative here. All we're doing is trying to curb it with um, military attacks, militarization. Well, that's the point. I mean, academics like you have made this point over the years, about all the problems. Why aren't African governments themselves addressing these problems? It, it, it's obvious, isn't it, what to do, really? It is obvious what to do. Um, I mean, I can't speak for African governments, but they seem preoccupied by other things, like staying in power, for example, rather than delivering <laughs> services, right? Yes. And so, I mean, we've seen in terms of governance, if you just look at the uh, idea report around governance in Africa, you see a reemergence of authoritarianism, what they're calling hybrid democracies. Yes. Um, and so we're slipping back. We're slipping back on the governance issues across the continent. But President Trump himself has not set an example for African leaders who want to hang on to power. How, how, how is the whole thing viewed in South Africa? Uh, with President Trump, I think the dominant feeling was uh, it was time for President Trump to vacate the, the office. Uh, we'd, we'd, we'd like to see that. There was a, a very nice skit by one of our comedians comparing Trump to Idi Amin. Idi Amin, yes. The things that Trump says and the things that Idi Amin says, right? Yeah. That he could very well have been an African dictator. Um, so, so yes, uh, these these problems around uh, the autocratic behavior of us of our leaders, it's not confined to Africa. What we need in place is uh, the structures. So, countries like America, they have the structures, the institutions in place. So, when we have a character like this emerge, it can then also be ousted. Yes, yeah, so, so I mean, the main problem in Africa is still one of governance. How do African countries, African leaders overcome this problem? Let's not leave it to African leaders, right? It's the African citizens that need to get together and press for a new social contract in in Africa, we need to deliberate better forms of participation and representation, um, that we need more active say in our government. We can't go into uh, another decade with simply having 55 men decide the future of a generation of, of young Africans, right? Uh, so representation needs to change. But they need to open up in terms of who participates in decision-making and in that way change the governance of this continent. But the problem uh, young Africans have who are supposed to take over the leadership of the continent for 2063, they don't know any better because what they've seen in the last 20, 30 years are just dictators and people who, who are still in left, right and center. That's all they know about politics. How will that change? 
This is where education comes in, uh, places like the African Leadership Institute. Well, yes, indeed. (laughs) Indeed. To think through different ways of being, to show people different ways of leading. Um, Yeah, and and, and not to place emphasis on individual leaders, but on leadership collectively. Yeah, because leaders actually know how to deal with the population. When election comes, they have millions to dish out, they dish out food, and then the people then go and vote for them. So the democratic process is not really working. It's just who, who, who you can give money before the elections who will vote for you. And is that the case? Yeah, well, I mean, democracy and governance doesn't uh, only revolve around elections. Um, the, the civic education that is supposed to form a major part of it, that is not there. Um, hold the institutions to hold government account during the periods of elections, that is not there. I think what is happening in South Africa at the moment is very interesting. So we, we have the Zondo Commission, we have this uh, attempt at rooting out corruption. At the moment, uh, one of the six top leaders of the African National Congress. Yes. Um, mm. Yeah, they have been um, taken to court. Um, he's just had to pay a bail of, I think, 200000 So when you're going for the top guys like that for corruption, you're, you're sending a message to everybody. Um, and I think this is what the Ramaphosa administration has tried to do. Is this going to be sufficient? We don't know because it's systemic. Yes. Over 20- Years of it, it's systemic. Well, in, in other African countries, 30, 40 years. So it's even more difficult to destroy. Yeah. So, so how do we break those patterns of governance? That's what we need to think through. I don't have answers, but we have to think through that. Yes. And uh, the death of the former Ghanaian president, Jerry Rollins, how was that uh, received in uh, South Africa or, or the Southern African region? Yeah, there have been lots of tributes uh, to him here. Um, You know, he has been held in high regard, uh, irrespective of how he came to power, what he tried to do in terms of promoting the uh, the African agenda, pan-Africanism, that that stands the test. Yeah, so I mean, generally speaking, how do you see things moving forward? in the SADC region in terms of peace and security and economic development? So generally, um, I think that the SADC organ on peace and security needs to be reinvigorated. Um, It's got a very staid modus operandi. Civil society, for example, is still not able to, to participate in the way in which they can in ECOWAS. Uh, very state-centric, that needs to change. Um, Far more discussion around how we deal with violent extremism, how do we include women, et cetera. We need to, in Southern Africa, re-examine our our threats to to peace and security. We haven't really dealt with issues around climate change, et cetera. All we've been saying is we've been doing very well in terms of peace and security. Yes. we look at Zimbabwe, 
Uh, we look at the Eastern DRC, but we still pat ourselves on the back. And I think we're going to be rudely awakened in the next few years in terms of peace and security. Professor Cheryl Hendricks, Executive Director of the African Institute of South Africa. Thank you very much. Thank you, Desmond. African Radio. For these and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. For feedback on this and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com.